The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Great to have you with us. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining from Dallas, Texas, which is, of course, my home base. I'll get to my guest in just a moment, but first, let me say thank you to my media partner and sponsor, Jobbing.com. If you're not familiar with them, Jobbing.com is the leading locally focused job board in the nation. They are dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard and giving job seekers control over the search so they can find work close to home. Great partnership. Thank you, Jobbing.com. So for this week's conversation, we get to snuggle up with a conversation with Dustin Marshall, who is running for Dallas Independent School District trustee, is very heavily involved in the Dallas-Fort Worth community, and is also passionate about education reform, among many other things. He is also the CEO of Hazel's Hotshot, which is an expedited freight and logistics company headquartered here in Dallas. And he's married with four young children. I don't know how you do it, Dustin. I don't think you must be sleeping, but I really appreciate you took time out to join me for this show. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. It is really astounding to think about all that you're involved with. And Justin, I mean, I can remember when we first met, we were both working on the on the Woodrow Wilson High School Community Foundation Board, and I thought all the things that you were involved in just then, and I knew so little about you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there, uh, go yeah ahead. We've, I've had the, the opportunity to serve in a lot of different capacities in the education space, and uh, I, I guess when I hear you, hear you say it all with uh, four kids and, and running a company, it, it makes me sound tired as well, but <laughs> I've, uh, I've been blessed to be surrounded by, by great people that, that help me accomplish that. I, I guess from a, you know, from a business perspective, um, I've got a really good team at, at Hazel's, and, and you know, those folks uh, are able to keep a lot of balls in the air, and so I, I delegate to them wherever I can, and then you know, from a personal perspective, I'm blessed to have an amazing wife who can help keep our, our four kids on track. Um, and you know, from a charitable perspective, I, I, I'm just doing what I love, which is helping kids, and so it, it doesn't really feel like work to me. Well, and I, it certainly shows, right? So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because you really do exemplify somebody who truly is working on purpose, right? What a perfect way to, to match a guest with the show's theme. And so when I thought about you and what you're up to, and of course, I got the chance to meet you when you were out campaigning, I thought, hmm, this would be a good guy to bring on. So when we talk about this notion of how people are connected to their work and what they're doing and you know, clearly what, what I see in you, Dustin, is I see that you are being energized by all the things that you're doing, which is exactly what we want. I, I don't know how else to explain how you keep all the, all the balls in the air otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, having a passion for what you're doing is a big part of it. You know, I, I would, I'm also fairly organized, and I think you know that that allows me to sort of maximize my time to accomplish a lot. Um, you know, I've been spending about 20 hours a week on on educational work over the last five years, and fitting that around family life and uh, and business life is tough. But if you know, if you like what you're doing every morning when you wake up and you're excited about you know where you're headed and and who you're talking to and and you know kind of pushing the ball forward for kids, it doesn't really feel like work. Hmm. Well, let's talk about that if we can. I mean, obviously, one of my big um, driving forces is is to understand why people do what they do. Why is it mean? Why and how is it meaningful to them? And where they get their energy from? So, for you, education is really, really important. Where did the passion come from? Well, it's a good question. Um, something of a psychological question, I guess. Uh, you know, as, <laughs> as I think back, I guess I've always had a passion for kids. Um, you know, when I when I graduated college, I actually moved to Boston to work for Bain for my first job, and uh, I immediately started volunteering as a Saturday tutor uh, with an organization in Boston called the Stepping Stone Foundation. Um, and you know, I, I guess I kind of caught the bug through that. I continued to you know kind of work in Boston on improving schools my my whole time there, and. Um, helped to start a, a Christo Ray model school in Boston, which is a Catholic work-study program. And then I went on to help a, a school in Boston called the Boston Renaissance School um, as they expanded from a elementary school up through an eighth grade. Um, and then as part of my my office team, when I moved to Chicago, I, I helped um, start an elementary school. So I, I feel like wherever I've gone, I've kind of felt called to help students find a pathway to success. And I, I think that drive in me dates back to my own childhood. Uh, I grew up poor in a single-parent household, but I had a, a mother and a grandmother who prioritized education. And so even as a young child, I recognized how fortunate I was to be at a great school. And so I, I worked hard to take advantage of that opportunity um, and, and was blessed to then get into a great school and a great job thereafter. But, uh, you know, I credit my mom and my grandmother and my education with getting me where I am today. And um, I think every kid deserves to get that great same early start in life, regardless of their zip code or their socioeconomic status. And if I can help um, make that happen, then I feel like I should. Mm-hmm. I have to say, can I? Will you indulge me to let you tell you tell you a quick story about my own my own childhood? Absolutely. Okay, you just brought back a memory when you said that. So it's funny how things happen in life, right? I remember I remember very distinctly being in kindergarten, and my um, kindergarten teacher. I, and perhaps in a moment of just frustration with me, she said to me, you are the stupidest kid I have ever had in my class. Wow. And I didn't, I, it didn't destroy me. It didn't, you know, reduce me to a pile of tears. I just thought to me, I just believed her. And so whenever I got work there forward, I remember being in first grade and second grade. I remember getting the assignments and I would sit there and look at the assignments and I'd go, okay, well, I am stupid. So I'm going to have to work at this harder than the other kids. I'm going to have to put more effort into this. And so I'd lay out this big old deep strategy and I'd, I'd really work at it. And over, of course, you know, guess what happened? I got really good grades. But that belief fueled me. I probably was all the way through high school that I finally thought to myself, well, maybe I wasn't the stupidest kid. Maybe she was just frustrated with me. But in my case, it served me really well. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, I think unfortunately that can go one of two different directions, right? I mean, um, teachers and you know, adults have disproportionate influence over young children, and and when they say something like that, it can can either serve to to motivate them um, to prove them wrong, like it did with you, um, or they can simply believe that and you know have it destroy their self confidence. So I'm I'm glad it worked the right way for you, but 
unfortunately, when we have a bad bad teacher in front of a classroom, and it sounds like you had a horrible one, um, they can have a really detrimental impact that can last for years. So, um, you know, I'm glad I'm glad you decided to just prove that teacher wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I I am too, and and but that of course that's the reason that I wanted to bring that story up because I I do know that those sort of things happen in the classroom, and 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 obviously they do have that negative ongoing detrimental impact that you know is horrible for people. So, it, but thankfully for me, I just, I, I was blissfully ignorant to, to that. I just, <laughs> I figured just it out on, on my road. own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, what is it about, you know, so here you are. I mean, one of the things I've learned about this notion of serving, right, being of service um, in, the, in the capacity, um, it's an awful lot of work um, and you don't get paid for it, right, as sure. a trustee? Is that correct? That is correct, yep. Okay, so let's talk about this crazy thing you want to do. You you want to go out there, you're out there campaigning to be a, a Dallas Independent School District trustee. So first, for any of our listeners that don't know what that means, will you explain that, um, what that role is and what you would do? And then tell us why in the world you want to do this. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so the Dallas Independent School District is governed by a nine-member board of trustees. It's a single-member district, so it's essentially the... The area um, that is served by DISD is divided into nine roughly equal parts, and each one of those um, parts um, elects a, a trustee to represent that district that serves a three-year term on the board. Um, and that board collectively is tasked with uh, setting the vision and the, and the policies for the district um, and then managing their their one employee. Well, actually, they have two employees. The second is the auditor, but the primary employee is the superintendent of schools, um, and, and they're, the, the board is tasked with measuring and evaluating um, that superintendent and then also with approving the budget. And so um, DISD serves about 160,000 kids and has a budget of about $1.6 billion. And so when it comes to setting those policies and managing that budget, it's a, it's a big task um, for those nine folks, and they have a lot of impact on the lives of a lot of, a lot of children. And so... Um, you know, which which I guess brings me to, to why I want to do it. Um, you know, the the educational outcomes in DISD are not where they need to be right now. We've only got about 55% of our kindergarten students that arrive on day one of school appropriately prepared to learn. And the educational attainment of the other 45% is capped for years to come. Uh, we've only got about a third of our third graders reading on grade level, and uh, less than 15% of our graduating seniors are graduating college ready. Um, so... You know, I've, I've tried to t- help tackle these issues as a volunteer personally, um, and you alluded to some of those experiences earlier, but, I, you know, I've helped tutor kids in literacy. I've helped working with you and, and other members of the Woodrow Foundation to provide scholarships to graduates. I've helped try to open literacy centers in, in elementary schools. Um, so I've been kind of down in the trenches, but I've also been working in leadership positions um, throughout the nonprofit world and in, in education in Dallas. Um, in fact, before running for trustee. I was the chair-elect of Reading Partners North Texas, which has brought in over a thousand volunteer tutors to help into our, into our public schools to help our struggling readers. Um, I've served on the board of Dallas After School, which acts as an umbrella organization to provide high-quality after-school care. I've served on the board of Dallas Social Venture Partners, where I invested my wife and I's resources alongside those of other education advocates. Um, served on the Education Council of the Chamber. I've served on the board of directors for Uplift Education, which is the largest public charter school operator in North Texas. And so, you know, I feel like I've touched a lot of lives. Um, but if you 
were to kind of add up all the the kids that are touched by all those nonprofits, you you end up with about twenty thousand or so kids. And as I mentioned, the ISD trustees influence the lives of one hundred and sixty thousand kids. So I feel like this is an opportunity for me to help a lot more children than I was before. Um, and you know, and I think it's a it's it's a way to to move the needle and and you know and and help a lot of souls. And so that's what motivates me to to run. Mm-hmm. I love how you gave us all that background and context. That really helps us understand the problem that you're trying to address here. And I can't, I didn't realize the the, the depth and breadth of the problem on that, Dustin. That's just amazing. I mean, when, you, when you talk to me about those reading levels, uh, that's really scary to me. I did also serve as a tutor for reading partners, not to the extent that you did, but got to experience that program and know it, how important it is. Oh, great. Um, I'm glad to hear that. It's, it, it is a wonderful program. And, uh, you know, there's... Reading Partners is operating in 18 DISD elementary schools right now, and and that number is growing. And so, you know, I think we can we can really help help a lot of kids if we can get that intervention and other successful interventions to to scale up. Hmm. And I do understand this notion of impact and moving the dial. I totally get that. Um, in fact, it's funny. One part of the reason that I did do that volunteering was because Mike Morath said, "You guys got to get out there and volunteer and help this organization. They need people." And on that basis, I marched myself down there and and signed up. <laughs> <laughs> because Mike told me to. Yeah. I think there are many uh, of us doing what Mike told him to, told us. To. I know, right? That's exactly right. I really respect that man. Um, well, I'm I'm also really curious, Dustin. I've seen you at some of the events that that you've been at when you're and when you're campaigning. But I just have to know from my vantage point, just curiously, what is it like to be out there in the campaign trail? What have you learned? What kind of experiences have you had? What's it like? Yeah. Well, I've certainly learned a lot. Um, I'm very new to politics, and and frankly, if you had asked me a year ago if I would have ever run for office, I would have laughed. Um, you know, I'm I'm not much of a polished politician. I just think I can help some kids, and and I'm trying to do that. And so during you know during campaigning, I've met a lot of other folks that really want to help kids, um, but I've also met some folks with very clear agendas that are focused more on what I think of as helping adults than on helping kids. And, you know, um, I guess those folks will just need to agree to disagree with me. But but overall, I've met a lot of, you know, really interesting people, had hundreds of conversations uh, with community members and learned a lot about what's important to voters and to parents and to other stakeholders and kids. I've been talking with kids, too. And so, um, you know, I, I think of it as a learning exercise and a, and a chance to, to, you know, let people meet me and hear about, you know, some of my priorities. Um, and then I can, you know, likewise learn from them about what's happening on the ground in their schools and, and hopefully try to be their voice, um, you know, if I'm elected as trustee. So curious, what are the kids telling you? <laughs> they don't like the food. <laughs> they like food? Is that what they said? No, no, I, said I, no I said they don't like the food. The, oh, the, they don't the, like the food. I, okay. Yeah, I asked uh, some kids recently uh, what needed to change in the schools, and they told me that there were too many worksheets and that they didn't like the food. <laughs> Did they tell you what kind of food they want? <laughs> no, they just uh, just complaining. They probably want more junk food, I would imagine. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, you've got to eat those veggies. I'm sorry. Um, That's right. <laughs> Um, well, one of the things that I learned as I as I was trying to investigate a little bit about you and your approach, of course, is it, it seems to me, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me that your approach to business and even serving as a trustee is really built around data. No surprise given your background. Is that right? And if so, how do you use the data? What are you doing to position yeah, yourself? Yeah. 
Well, you know, I spent a long time as a management consultant with Bain and Company, and and you know, data is sort of central to the approach there. And I, I think I'm bringing some of that history and approach uh, to this position. But you know, I believe in measuring outcomes. Um, you know, I, and I think if we measure the right things then data can tell us a lot about what's working and what isn't working. Um, and I think we can we can study one school where certain tactics are showing promise, for example, and then we can replicate those tactics in other similar schools. So, you know, I think data can help point us towards the best tactics. Um, and, you know, I've been reading and digesting data for a long time and as a, as a consultant and now as, as the CEO of my own business, um, you know, we use data to make decisions. And so I'm comfortable doing so. And, um, you know, have have spent about 15 years working in public education, reading and trying to digest data and research that uh, tells us what's working and what's not. And so, you know, uh, data is very central to how I view the world and how I think about um, education. But, you know, I, I think that having been said, it's also important to realize that, that data is really just the plural of anecdotes. And, you know, to really understand the data, I think you have to be on the ground talking to teachers and administrators and parents and and getting a more well-rounded perspective on the data. Um, and I've been doing that for a long time as well and would continue to do that as trustee so that you can't uh, you know, get totally blind by looking at spreadsheets. I think you've got to understand the story and the context of the data by getting out on the ground and talking to folks. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think you know, measuring outcomes is a central part of, of moving the needle forward, and, and that's what I hope to accomplish. So when you say the word data, Dustin, it sounds very abstract and far away. Can you give us maybe some examples of the kind of data that, that you would look at to drive your decisions? Sure. In fact, you were just uh, talking about literacy scores and, and reading partners. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a chart that, uh, that an organization here in town creates that they call their HOPE chart, and um, it essentially looks at uh, – the level of poverty in the schools um, on a on a chart graphed against the uh, the you know a- the outcomes uh, on the other axis and one of the outcomes that they look look at is third grade literacy scores and you know um, the conventional wisdom is that 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 schools that are high poverty will have lower um, lower literacy levels and and the students will perform not as well but um, you know in reality the data shows that that's not the case uh, if you if you plot each school on that chart and you look at some schools that are high poverty in some schools you see low literacy scores but in other schools you see really high literacy scores and in fact in many cases those those high scores um, in in high poverty schools can even be higher than corresponding literacy schools in relatively low poverty schools and so when you look at that, there's something happening, and I think if, if you follow the trail of the data and you kind of better understand um, why a high-poverty school is being more successful in literacy than a low-poverty school, it can teach you something. And, and, in, and in this case, you know, you mentioned reading partners. That's one intervention that's working in some high-poverty schools, but there are others, and I think if we, if we discover those and kind of uncover them through the data, then we can, we can go talk to the, the administrators and the teachers and those high-poverty but high-performing schools and understand and what they're what they're doing, and then go replicate it. I mean, this isn't uh, this isn't rocket science. When something works, we just need to scale it and and replicate it in other environments. And data will kind of put us on the path to investigate the right things and ask the right questions until we you know we know what's working. I like it. I like it. Um, I'm glad I asked because I think it's important for the listeners to really understand how it is you're using that data, and you did, did that beautifully. I, of course, knew a little bit about that because of both of our shared background, but I wanted to make sure that you could talk about it, too, and share it from your perspective. So thanks, and perfect timing here. We're going into our first break already, if you can believe that. 
We've been on the air with Dustin Marshall, who is running for Dallas Independent School District trustee, and he's also the CEO of Hazel's Hotshot here in Dallas, Texas. I'm Elise Cortez, your host, and after the break, we're going to hear more about some of his priorities relative to being a trustee that he'd like to work on should he get elected. Stay with us. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. When you see someone, are you seeing the person or the perception? We see labels such as fat, thin, black, white, rich, poor, but we don't always see the true identity. Listen for New Dimensions with Reverend Nicholas Barrett. On this program, we'll embrace the breaking down of societal paradigms, our norms, and acceptance of our false selves. You can find your identity the way that God intended. Forget all the labels that you think you see. Tune in every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dustin Marshall, who is running for the Dallas Independent School District trustee position and is also the CEO of Hazel's Hotshot here in Dallas, Texas. We have been talking a bit about his background, where he came from, where his love of education came from. For this next segment, we want to talk more about the the priorities that he wants to work on should he get elected as trustee. So from here, Dustin, I know that you talk about on your website four main priorities to the work that you want to do as a trustee, um, and, you, and you've, you've really kind of detailed them nicely. But for the sake of our readers who haven't been to your website yet, let's talk about your priorities. What do you want to get done? Absolutely. Yeah, as, I, as you mentioned, there's, there's four things that I've been kind of uh, laying out as, as top priorities. You know, the first is, is early education. Um, second is all around empowering principals and training them to, to be better educational leaders. Um, third is, is around racial and educational equity. And, and fourth is all about teacher development. And so if I, you know, kind of address each of those in turn, um, you know, the, uh, from an early education standpoint, you know, the, the research is really clear on this topic that about 85 to 90 percent of brain development occurs in a child before the age of five. And yet, somehow, we're only spending about 5% of our education dollars on early education. It, it really doesn't make any sense. Uh, we know that if a student, for example, is not reading on grade level by the third grade, they are four times more likely to drop out of school. 
Um, you know, and, and we also know from from various different research studies that a dollar invested in early education has a really high return on investment. Um, some experts argue about what that number is, but it's somewhere between seven dollars and ten dollars that is saved in the future for every one dollar you invest in, in early education, and, and you save that money by um, avoiding costly interventions that that uh, often are ineffective later in a child's life. And so, you know, we we know that we're not spending enough money. We know that the consequences are high um, when when a kid doesn't um, have a good start in life, and we know that if we spend more money, the return on investment is, is high. And so, to me, it's fairly intuitive that we should prioritize early education as an area for investment. Um, you know, and the, the DISD board, to be fair, has made some progress on this uh, in this area already, uh, but I think we need to go a lot further. Uh, I'm an advocate um, for ensuring um, access to quality pre-K for all three- and four-year-olds, um, and I think we need to partner with our communities to leverage the resources of third-party child care facilities in order to expand that access. And so, for me, you know, investing wisely in early education in early education not only better prepares our kids for the future, but also allows us to save some money in the process. Mm-hmm. I like that. In fact, again, you brought another memory for me here, Dustin. I, my daughter is now 13, and I remember very distinctly when she was young and I was shopping for pre- preschools for her, I was on 11 waiting lists. I was so not amused by that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It was just so frustrating trying to find a place to get her in. And, and she did finally land at the Children's Center, which was a fantastic experience for her. Um, and she was two and a half when she got in. And it was, it was a great experience. And, and I can't imagine what she would have done or what any of us would have done in terms of her education had she not gone through that process. We were very fortunate. Well, and I'm sure, and in your case, you know, just knowing you, I know you were a very involved, were and are a very involved parent. Um, but, you know, some kids um, living in poverty, or 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 even in middle and middle to low income households with with two working parents, um, they're they're often not getting the experience um, prior to their first day in kindergarten that prepares them. I think I, I mentioned earlier that only 55% of kindergartners at, at DISD are showing up ready to learn on day one. And, um, you know, data tells us if we track cohorts of, of kindergartners all the way through school, that as a class, their educational attainment never exceeds whatever the readiness level was on day one. So if you, you know, if you only have 55% of your kindergartners ready on day one, and then you track their performance as a first grader or as a sixth grader or as a twelfth grader, their their attainment level never exceeds that fifty five percent. It just goes downhill from there. And so, you know, the, the the most intuitive way that I can think of to improve educational outcomes at all grade levels, all the way up to twelfth grade, is to make sure that a kid is ready for, for learning on day one. And um, and, and one very effective way to do that is to have them be in a pre-K program. And, and you know, we've seen pre-K enrollment at DISD um, go up over the last couple years due to a lot of very effective marketing efforts. Um, but, you know, we're still not serving the whole population, and we're still only allowing um, certain um, groups of, of children to qualify for pre-K. And, you know, and I, I, I think we need to have all of our children in pre-K. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I completely agree. I, I, as I say, it was a great experience for us. And I, I didn't realize, again, the extent of the problem. One thing that you said that's really interesting to me, Dustin, is you said, if I heard this right, so it's not just that the folks that are coming into kindergarten not ready to learn, and that being that 55%, whatever that readiness state was, not that they never really catch up, but that you're saying that they increasingly fall further behind throughout the years. Right. Did I hear that right? That's absolutely wow. right. Yeah. Wow. You track... Um, you know, and it's true across all income levels, whether you look at 
um, you know, economic groups with economic disadvantage less than 50% or, you know, uh, those that are that are economically advantaged, um, whatever their kindergarten readiness level is, their educational attainment, uh, you know, in, in years after that always goes down from there. Now, of course, in, you know, in, in upper income families that have, have heavily invested in early childhood education, either through parents' day out programs or, or you know, groups at their, their local churches or synagogues or through, you know, private pre-K those those uh, those families and those kids tend to be more ready for for kindergarten on day one, and so you might see levels of kindergarten readiness up in the 90s or even you know near 100 percent in some cases. And um, you know, and so with those groups, you're going your educational attainment in future years is going down from an from an already very high number. But if you start really low, you know, somewhere in the 50s. Um, you know, then you've got half your class that that is never going to recover from not being ready to learn on day one at kindergarten. And so we've got to do a better better job of focusing on kids, you know, prior to their fifth birthday. Um, and you know, the most effective way to do that that I know of is to focus on three and four year olds um, by providing universal pre K and, and DISD. And so you know, I think that's that's a that's an area we've we've got to focus on. So to what extent, Dustin, do you think that there is an opportunity to further educate parents about the need to do this? I don't know to, if, if there are, if you, if you see or if any data tells you that there's any reticence for parents to say, well, they're going to be in school long enough. I, well, let's just start them at kindergarten. Is there any disconnect there with the parents thinking? Absolutely. In fact, that's a major, major problem. And certainly in, um, you know, uh, many, many different um, ethnic communities, there's, there's not awareness of pre-K. And so, you know, I think um, part of the task before the DISD administration is to educate parents on how to be advocates for their kids, how to, how to be aware of, uh, of things like pre-K or other policies or, or options that, that would better prepare their kids for success. Um, there's some, several organizations out there. There's a great organization called the Concilio, which yeah, um, works. Yeah, just thinking for- about them. Yeah, they, they work to train um, parents um, in the Hispanic community to, um, you know, be more aware of how the education system in America works and, and, you know, how to be better, how parents can be better plugged into the process and better advocates for their kids. You know, in, in my district, which is District 2, where I'm, I'm running for trustee, there's a partnership between the feeder pattern, um, the Woodrow Wilson feeder pattern, and the Concilio, where they do a program at the middle school there, J.L. Long, and, and they bring in parents throughout the feeder pattern to come in and take classes in Spanish to, to, to learn about, you know, how, what, what options are available to them and how to be more engaged in, in the education process for their kids. And, you know, that's an effective program, but certainly as it relates to pre-K, um, we've got a marketing issue here as well. I mean, we need to make sure that, that parents even are aware that, that pre-K exists as an option. And, you know, and right now, um, we don't have universal pre-K available for all three- and four-year-olds, but we do have, in the district, we do offer um, full-day pre-K to, you know, uh, certain groups of, of kids, and, and we don't even have perfect attendance amongst those those groups that are, are allowed to get full-day free pre-K right now. And so, um, you know, you see many families that are paying for a option that's sometimes an inferior option. Um, they're paying for an option to keep their kids in some sort of child care facility when the district's actually providing free, um, you know, higher quality pre-K. And so, you know, that's just a, that's just a lack of knowledge that we've got to bridge that gap. And, you know, and I think the district's starting to do that, but we've got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. I hear you. 
Well, anything else that you want us to know about the, your, your focus on early education before we talk about your second priority? Anything else in that mind of yours that I want to make sure that we get the chance to talk through on that one? Well, the only element that I would mention, um, which I alluded to briefly earlier, is around partnering with existing child care facilities. Um, you know, one of the challenges from an early childhood perspective is that we, you know, the two big barriers is that we don't have the adequate facilities to offer expanded access, and, and we may not have um, enough teachers to provide um, pre-K for, for all three- and four-year-olds. And so, you know, for those two barriers, I think that there's solutions to both of those, but we need to think creatively. Um, you know, on the one hand, the, the facilities access problem, I think, can be addressed by partnering with uh, third-party child care facilities in our communities. You know, many of these organizations start uh, taking kids in at the age of six months, and they will, you know, provide child care um, services all the way up through three- and four-year-olds. Um, but in many cases, those three- and four-year-olds are the, are the uh, sort of the money makers, if you will, for these private child care facilities because they require fewer adults for, you know, the ratio of supervision is, is less than a baby that needs its diaper changed every, you know, hour or two. And so those three- and four-year-olds tend to be um, economic engines for these, these local child care facilities. And if we move those three- and four-year-olds into, uh, into our schools, which I, I would argue is, is better for the better for the kid, but it may provide a a, uh, a gap in the financial situation for these local child care facilities. And so, when we do so, we risk um, putting those local child care facilities in a in a pinch where we took the the only children where they were making a profit away from them, and now we are expecting them to provide child care for six month year old six month olds through through two-year-olds, um, which are not not a profitable segment for those folks. So I think the way to alleviate that and to have kind of a win-win solution is to let the district actually use the facilities of the child care, of these independent third-party private child care facilities and to compensate them for using their facilities because that, that provides them with, uh, you know, with some profit um, and, and, and saves the district the need to go out and build a bunch of new uh, facilities for pre-K. And so I think there's a, a win-win solution there that, I'd, that I would encourage the district to explore further. I like that, Dustin. I like that because that really, to me, that's a nice marriage between the business community and, and, and the educational system. I, I really like that idea. That makes a lot of sense to me. I was hoping that you were going to address how you would pull that off, and you did it already without me asking you. But interesting, very interesting yeah. stuff. Are, yeah. Are you, and then on the teacher side, you know, I think we need to also expand, um, you know, the, the the sort of supply of high-quality instructors. And, you know, I know we'll talk about that in a minute as it relates to teacher development and managing the pipeline. But, you know, one thing that, uh, that irks me about um, our certification process right now is we treat – we treat teacher certification as if um, it's as if teaching fifth grade is the same thing as teaching pre-K or kindergarten, and, and what I mean by that is that the certification that's required for for teaching all those levels is the same certification, and uh, you know that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's very little in common in terms of the skill that it requires to teach a three or four year old versus teaching a fourth grade math class, for instance. And so, you know, I think we need to um, think about certification programs a little differently and ensure that we're, we're creating an environment where there's a certification path and a pipeline of teachers that are, are qualified to teach early childhood education. And so, um, you know, I think that, that combined with the facilities partnerships with third-party child care facilities will, will, you know, kind of eliminate the two biggest barriers to, to offering pre-K. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. 
Uh, this is really interesting for me. I'm glad that I, I got you to myself, if you will, for that conversation, <laughs> for this conversation. No um, we've got a couple minutes before we have to go on our, our next break. Um, so let's talk about, let's start talking anyway about your second priority, which I know is about empowering principles. Yeah, what do you think yeah. about there? Yeah, you know, good principles really foster an environment where good teachers can shine. And, you know, and great principles will create a culture that makes great schools. And, you know, I think most of us, even even folks without any background in education, can, uh, you know, I, I would challenge them to spend five minutes inside of a school, and I bet you you can tell whether it's got a great principle or a mediocre or a poor principle. And, you know, it's, it's basic things like, you know, how are children behaving in the hallways? Um, you know, you can pick up some pretty easy cues about how principals are handling their environments and whether they're creating that culture that fosters great schools. Um, you know, and I, I think in, in DISD, we've got some, some great principals, uh, but we also have some that are very new and very green. Um, Superintendent Miles, who, uh, who left uh, recently, he passed a principal uh, principal evaluation system about two years ago, and I think that was a, a, a great policy, but I also think it resulted in a lot of turnover at the principal ranks, and so we've got about 60% um, new principals in our schools, and many of those principals are very talented, um, and I'm glad they're there, but many of them are green, and you know, and I think we need to do a better job of training them. I think we really need to roll out a world-class principal training program, and not something that's intermittent or done during principal or teacher in-service days. I'm talking about a constant, focused, ongoing effort that makes sure our principals are the best educational leaders out there. Um, I think the district needs to look for cost-effective solutions and programs that develop our principals by using the right partners who are ready and willing to help the district. Uh, we've got a partner right now at, at the district called the Teaching Trust, which is a, a nonprofit organization working with several different school districts that provides a year-long principal training program where principals bring in their teams and work in groups, um, and they learn from experienced educators, and they learn you know what's working in, in schools and what's not. Um, I think that's a wonderful program, but it, unfortunately, there's only 10 DISD principals in that program this year, and with 227 schools, we've got a long way to go if we're only going to train 10 principals a year. And so, you know, I'd like to see that program and other programs like it uh, really scale up. Um, and, you know, and philosophically, I think after we've we've trained those principals, um, we need to give them the freedom to do their jobs without bureaucratic meddling. Um, we need to get out of their way, and we need to hold them accountable for student achievement in their schools. And so, you know, we've we've got a long way to go here, but this is an area that I would I would really invest in. Um, you know, I, there's some research that shows that uh, highly effective principals can raise the achievement of a typical student in their schools by two to seven months of additional learning each and every year that they're in school. <laughs> so, I, I recognize that that's a broad range, but even if it's on the low end of two months incremental learning per school year in a nine or ten month you know uh, year, that that's a huge impact that the principal is having, and yeah, you know, that's mainly through. Um, hiring, developing, and supporting talented teachers. You know, uh, I think the Teaching Trust has some research that shows that 24 out of 25 teachers say that the number one factor in whether or not they will stay at a school is the principal. And, you know, we've got a tremendous amount of teacher turnover in the district right now. Um, you know, somewhere between 1,500 and 1,800 teachers are leaving every year. 
um, and many of those teachers point to their principal and, and as the explanation for why they're leaving. And so makes makes you know, sense, Dustin. Let me interrupt you really quick for a quick break here, but it makes complete sense because it's just the same thing as a boss, right? So we leave our boss, not our job. <laughs> exactly. So quick. Quick break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dustin Marshall, who, among many other things, is running for Dallas Independent School District trustee position. He is also the CEO of Hazel's Hotshot, which is an expedited freight and logistics company headquartered here in Dallas. Uh, he is married with four young children and managed to keep all these balls in the air. We've been talking about some of the priorities he hopes to accomplish when, when he gets elected to office. We'll resume that conversation after the break. Stay with us. It's time to do all of those things that you always said you'd do in your life. What's stopping you? Is it other people, your environment, fear? What could give you a push? Tune in to Raising the Bar with Amy Bredo. Our show is all about taking risks and turning them into positives and personal gain. We'll help your inner voice speak up and get you out of that comfort zone. Raising the Bar can be heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's one 346 9141 You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dustin Marshall, who is running for Dallas Independent School District trustee position and heavily involved in the community in terms of education. He is also the CEO of Hazel's Hotshot, which is a company focused on expedited freight and logistics here in Dallas. We've been talking about the priorities he hopes to accomplish if he gets elected. Um, We talked a little bit about the importance of early education before the break and also empowering principals. Um, the next one that I know that you're passionate about is racial equity. What, what's going on there for that one? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, I think all of the ISD students deserve a respectful learning environment in which their racial and ethnic and cultural diversity is, is, not, is, is valued and, and, you know, not only accepted but, but contributes to successful and better academic outcomes for all the kids in their schools. And, you know, to achieve this end, I think we need an intense focus on equity and we need to adjust resource allocation to overcome challenges and we need to confront some institutional biases that are resulting in predictably lower educational and academic achievement for students of color. Um, you know, fundamentally, I think as a district, we're only going to be as successful as our worst performing school. 
Uh, and, you know, I think when you look at some of those institutional biases, um, discipline is, is a big one. Um, you know, over the over the school year from, you know, 2013 and 14 through 2014 to 15, um, you know, we've seen a pretty dramatic increase in all types of discipline issues, whether those are out-of-school suspensions, in-school suspensions, um, expulsions, so on and so forth. You see an increase in, in those types of discipline issues. And when you look at the racial disparities among kids that are um, receiving those punishments, um, it's it's highly disproportionate. You know, in, in DISD, we have about 23, 24% of our student body, which is black. Um, about 70% of it is Hispanic, and about um, 5% or so is, is white, um, with the other folks, you know, the other um, ethnic groups making up the difference. Uh, but if you look at the, the disciplinary actions um, taken, um, over half of them are with black students, which is, you know, is heavily disproportionate to their enrollment in the schools. And so, uh, you know, I think we've got to think thoughtfully about what what's causing that um, and and what sort of biases amongst our our teachers or our administrators are resulting in, in some of those issues. And so, you know, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not an expert in handling discipline, but, I, I, you know, the data tells us that, that something is amiss here. And and I think we need to do some training and some um, sort of cultural sensitivity exercises with with staff to make sure that we're we're headed in the right direction there. Um, you know, I, I, we also see some some discrepancies from a race standpoint um, in the allocation of, of teachers and resources. You know, we we know that African American students are about two times more likely to be taught by a teacher who is graded one of our least effective teachers um, than their white or Hispanic counterparts would be, and so. You know, um, it, it appears, at least from the data, like that there's a, uh, a misallocation of resources uh, of um, you know of both teachers and of do- and dollars. And so, one of the programs that uh, was rolled out under the Miles administration and has been continued by Superintendent Hinojosa is called ACE. And the ACE program is essentially taking um, our our best performing teachers and providing them an economic incentive to move to one of our worst performing schools. Um, and the the early data we've only been at this for about a year, but the early data on the effectiveness of the ACE program is pretty staggering. And so, um, you know, we, we're starting to see that if we if we allocate resources and we put our best teachers in our worst performing schools, then it improves not only the culture of the school but improves the educational outcomes for kids. And so, I think we need to be thoughtful as we're allocating resources and, and continue to uh, support the ACE program and look for other programs like that that uh, can help our worst performing schools get better. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who's, as somebody who's very interested in diversity and inclusion, I do think that the racial component is extremely interesting. I didn't know those stats, of course, don't know them like you do, um, but I, I certainly see the importance of that. And, and it is interesting coming, I'm from the Northwest originally, Dustin, I grew up in Oregon, and so it's quite homogenous up there. So coming down here where the, now the majority is Hispanic community, it's, it's really it's really interesting and enriching to be around that, but also challenging, certainly, as, you, as you're saying. Yeah, yeah. We've got a lot of work to do, and, you know, and uh, we've got a, a, you know, complex racial history in Dallas um, that dates back, you know, uh, throughout the the 19th and 20th century, and, you know, and there's um, a lot of suspicion between um, North Dallas and South Dallas, and I think that's a barrier um, for, for progress, and it's something that we need to be thoughtful about, but we need to, you know, kind of think of ways where those communities can come together in the best interest of kids, and so, you know, a lot of work to be done there, though, I think. 
Mm-hmm. I agree. Opportunities, shall we call them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, um, anything else you want to talk about on racial equity before we, I know we go on to the last priority, which is teacher development? Anything else you want us to understand about that? No, I think we've touched on the key points there. And, you know, I think, um, you know, you alluded to the fourth priority around teacher development. I, you know, that's that's one where, uh, you know, I think we've we've made some progress, but, uh, you know, we've got a lot of a lot of work to do. Um, you know, uh, we know from from data on teachers that um, the single most important controllable factor in determining the future of the kids we serve is having an effective teacher in front of every classroom. Um, and, you know, this means recruiting, training, developing, measuring, and rewarding the best people to teach in our schools. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've recently passed an initiative called the Teachers, Teacher Excellence Initiative, or TEI, um, that was passed by the board last year, and it essentially is intended to um, pay teachers for the performance of the kids underneath their purview rather than um, paying them for how long they've been employed by the school district. And, you know, I think this is an important reform um, that has been implemented and passed and implemented by the board already, but it's one that we need to continue to, to see through and, 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 you know, continue to implement with fidelity. Uh, you know, I, I believe that our educators deserve an accurate real-time assessment of the quality of the instruction that they're providing their students, and they also deserve a system of professional support and development um, that helps them augment their instructional knowledge and skills and become and helps them to become, you know, better educators. And so, um, you know, TEI is a start in this area, um, but, you know, there's a lot of progress still to be made. Um, you know, unfortunately, in the U.S., teaching has not been a profession um, where, uh, you know, our highest talent um, um, students are attracted to. And, you know, many of them make a decision to go into teaching, um, but we're not providing an economic incentive for them to do so. And, um, you know, I think if we if we truly believe that teaching is the most important profession of our time, then it's time we put our money where our mouth is and start paying teachers a lot more than they're, they're making right now. Yeah, and one of the things that I've had um, a conversation with people about relative to that is the notion of, of also just um, – there's the money piece of it, of course, too, and, and putting the money where the mouth is, and just simply valuing it more as, as a real – beautiful profession that it is. And what is it that there are other countries out there that I certainly, I think are doing maybe a better job at that. And I don't, I don't know if, they, if Canada is one of them. Um, but I was talking with somebody who was saying that, yeah, to be a, to be a teacher in the country I live in is, you know, almost better than being an engineer. Yeah. Well, and you know, Finland is the example that a lot of people Finland, hold up yes. about that. You know, Finland is, has a very, very, um, exclusive um, teaching training process. It's almost like becoming a doctor would be in the U.S. where, you know, you have to, uh, you know, audition for the hardest medical school to get into. In Finland, the hardest schools to get into are the education schools. And, you know, the top, you know, 10 or 15 percent of every graduating high school class really wants to be a teacher and they compete to get into education schools. And then after they get into school, they have to do something similar to a residency program would be for a doctor in the U.S. where they're actually teaching in, in a class under the tutelage of a, of a master teacher. Um, you know, and so they go through this very rigorous process and then they're paid very, very well. And, um, you know, and it's a very noble profession and people are impressed when you say that you're a teacher. And so I think if we can, you know, kind of move to that, um, to that, that philosophy and that mindset in America, you know, that would, that would lift, um, all our schools up. 
um, you know, I think we're we're probably you know as a society many years, um, if not decades, away from accomplishing that. But you know, on a local scale, I think there's things that that DISD can can do to you know attract and prepare um, high quality instruction. You know, um, we've recently started kind of a regional marketing campaign targeted at 16 to 22 year olds. Um, and are providing them um, resources like a, a central website for to find pathways into education. Um, you know, we're starting to do some pre-college uh, teaching uh, experiences that that you know help to attract more 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 kids into the profession. Um, you know, and we're starting to look for for partnerships. Um, you know, there's a there's a new early childhood focused teacher prep program at the Dallas Community College District, which provides an opportunity for for some folks to go into the teaching profession um, when they're when they're trying to get an associate's degree at the community college district. Um, you know, we, we've we've got a, a pipeline program uh, problem here. You know, um, there's just a mismatch between the supply and the demand of high quality instructors and you know, we've, we need to look for creative ways uh, to solve that problem. There was some legislation in front of uh, our, 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 in front of Austin, the legislature down in Austin this last cycle that would have um, would have allowed the community college district in Dallas to do a a four year teaching degree. Um, that legislation did not pass, but you know, I, I hope that it's revisited because you know something like that would would really help us solve this pipeline program problem. Um, but yeah, you're right. Part of it is just um, changing the the society's perception of of what teaching is and and how noble the profession is. Mm-hmm. Which is, of course, is a long term process. I, I understand. Um, well, anything else on teacher development that you want to talk about? I, I definitely want to talk about how you're going to work with the DISD board. But anything else you want us to know, or that would be helpful or interesting for us to know about your ideas about teacher development? Yeah. But the only other um, major concern I have on the uh, on the teacher development side is just making sure that we're training our teachers uh, appropriately. You know, the the Miles administration um, got rid of the professional development department at DISD, and and I don't think we've quite recovered from that. Um, I would assume Mr. Miles had some some plan for how he was going to replace that division, but uh, with his departure, I, you know, I, I know um, Superintendent Superintendent Hinojosa is is looking for ways to uh, to get professional development back on the radar. We need to do a better job of training teachers once they're under the purview of the district. Um, and in many cases, we need to do a better job of of providing um, education to teachers before we hire them. You know, we've got uh, a lot of teachers that are getting alternative certifications um, rather than, than than doing, you know, a higher ed um, baccalaureate or post-baccalaureate um, uh, training session or, or, or program. And, you know, some of these um, alternative certification programs, many of them are are not uh, performing very well. And, you know, they're, they, they get, uh, they get graded, um, you know, on an A, B, C, D, F scale. And, and I don't think any of the alternative certification programs in Texas have a grade of A or B, you know, they're all getting C, Ds and Fs. And so, um, you know, we, we we need to we need to do a better job of of training teachers and then hiring good ones and evaluating them and measuring them and rewarding them for high quality instruction. Wow, I didn't realize how I didn't realize the professional development department had also evaporated. That's really interesting. Um, yes, lots of work to do, and I'm now looking at the clock and realizing we are just almost out of time here. So I want to give you one minute, if you can, Dustin. Um, I know the DIST board is known for some drama and some pretty strong personalities here. How do you think you're going to be able to be effective in working with this group? Yeah, we're in this yeah. environment. 
Well, good question. There is a lot of drama. You know, I think all healthy relationships involve trust and mutual respect and a common purpose. And so, you know, job one with me will be to build on the relationships I already have and to grow new relationships where I don't. I I currently have strong relationships with six out of the eight sitting trustees um, and with um, several of the candidates that are running for the other open seats in this election. And so I've already reached out to the two candidate, the two uh, trustees with whom I don't have a relationship and I'm trying to, you know, build that via social time spent together and, you know, visiting their schools to show that I have an interest in helping all kids, um, you know, uh, you know, attain better educational outcomes. And so, you know, I think as we, as we, you know, kind of build trust and help forge those relationships and, you know, develop a belief that we're all trying to help kids, then, you know, we can, uh, we can find some common ground to, to work together and push the needle forward for kids. So, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting from a good place there and I, and, you know, and I pledge to continue to, to try to build those relationships where they don't already exist. Beautiful. That's nice. That's very crisp as well. Um, well, any final thoughts here? Well, I guess I better say any, any final just maybe thought about running here. I know you're running for, for District 2. Is that right? Yes. District 2 is a, kind of a donut shape around the park cities. And so it includes Preston Hollow on the north, Bluffview on the west, Oakland on the south, and then Lakewood on the east all the way up to, to White Rock Lake. And so um, the election is on May 7th. Um, the voter turnout for these elections is quite small. It's probably a scenario where anywhere from five to 7,000 people will determine the outcome of the election. And so I would encourage your local listeners to, uh, to get out and vote, whether they vote for me or not. But I, I, hope, they, uh, I hope that I've uh, garnered their support, and, and they can certainly more, learn more about the campaign by visiting my website. Which is? Yeah, that website is, is www.dustinmarshall.com, and it lays out priorities and tells you a little bit more about me and my background. And so I appreciate you uh, letting me come and speak with your listeners today, and, and thanks so much. Thank you, Dustin. Perfect timing. Thanks, listeners, for joining us. We'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.